from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Masai. This week, Nechama Goldman Barash discusses Masai. Nechama Goldman Barash is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Nechama Goldman Barash. This week, we're going to explore Parshat Masai. Or really, we're going to be looking at the end of the Book of Numbers. And in this podcast, I want to reflect back on some of the stories that define the first half of the book as compared to the second half, and focus on two of the stories that comprise the end of the book of Bamidbar, and really the end of Moshe's sojourn as leader of the people. There are no more narratives left to be told. There is only the swan song of Moshe in the book of Deuteronomy, with his passionate imploring of the people to follow in God's ways and keep to the covenant, along with dozens of laws aimed at setting up a just society. The beginning of the book of Numbers is rife with stories of rebellion and failed leadership, and God and Moses and the children of Israel circling one another in an attempt to find the sustainable model for an ongoing relationship. Several stories stand out, namely the failed mission of the spies who delay the entry of the nation into the promised land for 38 years, and the insurrection led by Korach in a failed coup to take the leadership away from Moses and Aaron. It is a sad reflection of a collection of people chosen by God and united in their exodus from Egypt, but with little else uniting them after so many years of suffering and slavery. In the end, even Moses suffers the consequence of leading such a disparate people, for God recognizes that he is not the right leader to bring the new generation into the land and lets him know in a poignant, very sad scene that he will go up onto the mountain to see the other side, but he will never cross over the Jordan. In the second half of the book are two stories that seemed as if they could be perceived as challenges. The first story, The Daughters of Slavchad, is so significant that the five sisters are named no less than three times in chapters 26, 27, and 36. Theirs is the last story that closes the book of Numbers, as we shall see. But it's a story that could hint at rebellion. They are five women. They come alone without any men representing them. Their father is dead, and yet they are asking for land. In a patriarchal society, their request is unprecedented. It is, in fact, so unusual that Moses has to seek counsel from God. In the Tractate of Sanhedrin, Baba Batra 119b, the Talmud actually has to tell us that they were wise women, skilled in interpreting scripture and virtuous. They were wise, says the Talmud, for they spoke at an opportune moment. They were skilled in interpreting scripture, for they understood that if their father had had a son, they would not have spoken. In other words, they were not looking to foment a feminist revolution. Finally, they were virtuous, since they married only men who were worthy of them. The Talmud steps in here, I believe, because you might think they were not coming with the right intent. Women coming into the very male world of the tabernacle and standing before the leadership could be perceived as threatening the social order. Thus, it is made clear that at the outset, their agenda was only to listen to the word of God. And of course, having God state, the daughters of Tzlavchad have spoken well, allows us to have such a positive reading of their story. It's always good to have God on your side when you are doing something new. Rashi here notices something interesting. Right after the daughters of Tzlavchad in chapter 27 have their request for land validated directly by God, and shortly before Gad and Reuven, two of the tribes, step forward with their request for land in chapter 32, 
God sends Moses up onto Mount Avarim. There is a powerful wordplay going, going on here. The mountain he is to go up on is called Avarim, or crossings, from the word Avar, or Ma'avar. But it is a crossing that is being denied to Moses. He can go up on the mountain of crossings, but he cannot cross over to the other side. In any event, Rashi writes as follows. Go up to these heights of Avarim, in verse 12. Why is this passage placed here, asked Rashi, immediately after the story of the daughters of Tzlavchad? He then brings a midrash, a rabbinic interpretation. When God said, you shall indeed give them, the daughters of Tzlavchad, a hereditary holding, Moses thought, wow, I was commanded to give them the inheritance. Perhaps the decree has been nulled, and I will, after all, enter the land. Then God says, my decree stands in place. To explain further, Moses has just been commanded to give inheritance to a group formerly denied inheritance, and all because they came and asked. He thinks to himself, perhaps the decree against myself, denied inheritance, has been lifted for perhaps this is a period of some grace. But God dispels such thoughts by immediately informing him to go up on the mountain to see the other side, for he will not cross over. The second story is the request of Gad and Reuven to not cross over the Jordan. They don't want to cross over to the other side. And and this is astonishing, really. For 38 years, the nation has been holding its breath and waiting for time to pass so they can cross into the land promised by God. And now two nations come to Moses, Moses who has been denied access to this very land, and they ask to stay put. The back and forth between Moses and the two tribes is very interesting. Moses responds harshly by reminding them of the story with the spies and how terribly consequential such a betrayal to the covenantal plan can be. He stresses his concern that they will turn the nation away from the land once and at once and again and questions the morality of abandoning the nation on the eve of conquering of the land. However, to Moses' credit, he does not shut them down completely. And when they respond, he is able to listen and hear that they are in fact not the spies and that their request is not that of complaint and insurrection. Moses reasserts himself at the end of Numbers as the consummate leader that he really is. And he helps them develop their own vision of what their future is going to look like. In their counter-proposal, after he has challenged them, Gad and Reuven explain to Moses that due to the largesse they have accrued over the years, they want to pasture their cattle and livestock on this side of the Jordan, Jordan, where the pastures are lush. However, after they secure the area and build pens and houses for their livestock and children in that order, they will remain with their brethren from the other tribes until the last tribe has conquered and settled his land. Moses, upon hearing this, gives this plan his stamp of approval with one minor but significant change. He accepts their proposal, but tells them to build houses first for their children and then for their animals, sharply reminding them with that switch that their priority is really for their children first and animals second. 
He remains an educator and a leader, even at this bittersweet time when he is relinquishing the reins. Rashi, who we quoted above about the daughters of Tzlavchad and Moses hoping, hoping this was a moment of grace for him, continues his commentary on the verse about Mount Avarim by bringing in this story of Ruvain and God. In other words, Rashi says that the reason God tells him to go up on Mount Avarim is possibly for two reasons. One is he might have thought when the daughters of Tzlavchad were given their inheritance, suddenly God had changed his mind and had a moment of compassion or could have a moment of compassion towards Moses. The second suggestion Rashi brings in, which juxtaposes the daughters of Tzlavchad with Gad and Reuven, is the story here where they come and they ask not to go into the land. Here's the other view. When Moses entered the inheritance of the children of Gad and Reuben, he rejoiced, I think the decree against me has been annulled. Here too suggests the Midrash brought in Rashi. Moshe was hoping that his decree was annulled, for here too was another group of people asking for something out of the ordinary and seemingly beyond their reach. Furthermore, in acquiescing to Ruvain and Gad, and Moses adds the half-tribe of Menasha, the borders of the land of Israel have essentially been extended beyond the Jordan to the area on which the mountain of Avarim stands. So climbing the mountain is in effect like climbing a mountain on the other side of the Jordan. Furthermore, by including the half-tribe of Menashe in with Ruvain and God and splitting the tribe of Menashe onto two sides of the Jordan, it furthers the connection between both sides of the Jordan, that they both are the inheritance of the children of Israel. The Midrash um, cites Cited in Rashi continues that Moshe misjudges God's determination to keep him from the land. And the Midrash brings a parable. This is like a king who decreed that his son would not enter the palace. He entered the gate, left it behind him, and then the courtyard till it was behind him, then the main hall till it was behind him. When he was about to enter the living quarters, the king said, My son, from here onward, you are forbidden to enter. In this Midrash, the king has decreed his son will not enter the palace. We do not know why. The reason is highly irrelevant. What matters is the decree and the son's response. And while the king is the monarch, he is also the father to the son who has been denied entry. Slowly, slowly, the son enters the grounds of the palace. He goes through the gate and then the courtyard until he is in the main hall. And here the king stops him and lovingly calls him my son, but reminds him of the decree, the son will never enter the inner sanctum of the palace. He will never ever be able to be in that close, intimate space which belongs to his father, the king. The parable's message is clear. Despite the closeness between the father and son, in the end, the king has the final word. Despite the closeness between God and Moses, akin to a father and son, God's decree ultimately prevails. Moses creeps closer and closer until only a river separates him. And even more frustrating, he is standing on land that is consecrated land, won by the children of Israel in a war championed by God, and given to two and a half of the tribes who will be fully part of the children of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. So Rashi's commentary, which explores these two stories, stories that could be but are not about rebellion, stories that are about new narratives in which daughters inherit and the utopian vision of 12 tribes settling the land is shattered by a different vision from two of the tribes, represent a new generation that are thinking differently and asking questions that deviate from the norm, even as they affirm their commitment to God, Torah, and mitzvot.
Moses, at the end of his life, sadder and wiser, remains a leader who listens to his flock and recognizes, finally, that they will journey on without him and they will find their own version of what the promised land will be. A quick look at the last chapter of the book reinforces this new model of interaction. While the daughters of Tzlavchad were answered in the affirmative, their cousins in the tribe of Menashe come to Moses in chapter 36 with a serious concern. Women inheriting create a serious problem for the tribes going into the land. Unlike men, when women marry, they completely cross over into their husband's family and take all of their assets with them. So any land that they inherit will come to be owned by their husbands and sons or daughters, and this will damage the integrity of the land given to Menashe. If each daughter marries into a different tribe, then there will be five pockets of land within the tribe of Menashe's borders that will actually belong to other tribes, and they perceive this as an injustice to the entire tribe's nachala, or the allotted portion for the first generation going into the land of Israel. We are told that Moses, at God's bidding, finds an answer that both maintains fidelity to Tzlavchad's portion as well as alleviates the anxiety of the tribe. The daughters are instructed to marry men within their tribe, as must all daughters in the same situation in this generation, in order to preserve the intended allotment parceled out to each tribe. This is a unique ruling for a singular occurrence of entering the land for the first time. And the book ends with the following verses. The daughters of Slavcha did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Machla, Tirza, Chogla, Milka, and Noah, Slavcha's daughters, were married to sons of their uncles, marrying into clans of descendants of Menashe, son of Joseph, and so their share remained in the tribe of their father's clan. We end with the daughters doing as God commanded Moses, and then we segue into a final verse, the last verse in the entire book of Numbers. These are the commandments and regulations that the Lord enjoyed, enjoined upon the Israelites through Moses on the steps of Moab at the Jordan near Jericho. This kind of behavior, this, how the daughters of Tzlavchad behave in this chapter together with their cousins, the sons of Menashe, this is reflective of the kind of ongoing relationship with God, with Torah, with mitzvot. Asking, listening, and responding, perhaps Moses can take comfort that he will always be remembered as the one who brought this relationship, who nurtured the relationship between God and his people, permitting the questioning, listening, and accepting, connecting to God through Torah, laws, ritual, and eventually land, and birthed it into being, even if he himself cannot see it actually being born. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Nechama. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.